Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 182. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. This week, our guest is Vina Jetty. Vina is the founding partner at Enzo Multifamily, founded in 2015. Enzo now controls over $250 million of apartments, consisting of over 2,000 units across Texas and Florida. Today, Vina and I are going to dive into her transition from investing in single families in the Dallas-Fort Worth metro to now investing in multifamilies and building a successful syndication business. So without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. All right, today I welcome on the show, Vina Jetty. Vina, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Well, hey, Vina, could you tell the audience members a little bit more about yourself, kind of how you got started in the world of real estate investing and just kind of your journey up to this point? Yeah, so I always get asked this question how I got started. So I kind of took the easier route in coming from a real estate family. I already had like an inroad very easily. So ever since I was little, my parents have been investing in real estate. They were heavily invested into the Chicago market. And so I grew up around real estate investing my whole entire life. I started going on walks, like property walks with my parents when I was really little. I'd sit in on closing. Weekends, they would be doing, they did some rehabs on their single family properties. We'd be there for that. So I had kind of that inroad already in. And I started actually in the single family game and quickly realized that it's not very scalable. So we ended up going from single family and making that shift into multifamily, which is definitely a much more scalable asset class, if you ask me. Yeah, sure. It's like so many people out there getting started with those single families, transitioning to multifamily seems to be a pretty common approach. Now, lucky for you, you had some background from a early childhood, it sounds, helping your family with those renovations and flips and just being involved in the day-to-day. So I'm sure that was really valuable. Lots of people don't actually yeah. start out in the world of real estate investing. You know, they're engineers or doctors or lawyers or whoever they might be, real estate agents, and they become that accidental landlord and then something switches and they kind of become an intentional landlord after that. But with you, Mm -hmm. it was intentional from day one. Yeah, it's funny you say that because one of my partners at Enzo is Neil Dandona, and he is actually a physician by day. And he started, he right, you hit the nail right on the head there. But he actually skipped single family altogether and just joined in multifamily. So I personally think he did it the right way. If you ask me, because if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have skipped single family investing. Yeah, sure. Well, kind of walk us maybe that transition from single family to multifamily. What did your single family portfolio look like? when you made that transition? Why did you? And just kind of walk us through that time frame. 
Yeah. So I initially started out with single family investing because it's very accessible, or at least I thought it was more accessible than multifamily investing was. Now, knowing what I know today, I obviously feel differently, but I started, so my husband's actually a physician also. We had a really high income. And I remember our first year we were married, we paid so much in taxes. I was like, there has to be a better way than what we're doing right now. And I was working in the corporate world for some of the Fortune 500s in real estate, actually. So I I come from an institutional background and I was making a lot of money for somebody else that I wasn't reaping the rewards of that. And that coupled with the tax liability that my husband's income brought in, it was just made sense for us to go into this for ourselves. So I quit my job, started my own company, started investing in single family homes. I actually started in DC buying condos, started turnkey, then went to, you know, the light rehab, then a little bit more heavy on the rehab. And we ended up moving to Dallas which happened to be a fantastic market, still is today. And so I started buying houses that were wholesale, were on the wholesaler list. My initial plan was to fix and flip them. But once I got into them, I was getting such great loan terms from my bank that it actually made more sense for me to buy them, rehab them, and then put a permanent loan product on it and hold them. So the buy, rehab, and hold model was kind of what I was working off of. And I was buying several single family homes. I had up until this year, I had maintained my portfolio. So this year is actually, well, I should say 2018 was the year. Yeah, it's hard when you're right at the beginning of the year. But uh, so I, last year, I actually got rid of almost all of my single family homes, or at least the remaining ones. Now I have one that I have here in Dallas. And I only kept that because I was trying trying to sell it as part of the portfolio package of my last package of properties. And the investor who bought my portfolio said, I want all of them except for this one property. And I was like, well, that was my best cash flowing property and it's free and clear. So sure, I'll keep it. So yeah, I ended up keeping that one. And then I have some of my DC properties. Those are a little bit more class A. So they don't necessarily cash flow as high, but I'm holding them because they're places that I would eventually be okay having a second home at some point that someone else has paid off. So kind of the thought process there. I think something big just happened in the DC area, some big announcement about Amazon HQ. Yes. Right? So <laughs> yes. might not be a bad idea there. Right. And DC is actually very interesting too as a city because they have like a height restriction or height ordinance where you can't build higher than the top of the Capitol building. So they don't have massive skyscrapers in DC proper. So there wasn't a whole lot of risk for a lot more units to come up vertically. Everything has to be urban sprawl because of that height restriction. So I like that. And I also like the DC market a lot because you have a massive tenant base there with as many government workers that you have. And the government isn't going to let the economy there collapse, I think. So I like that market a lot. It's tough to do multifamily in that market though, because it's just such an expensive market. Yeah. Well, what were some of the challenges you were seeing in managing your single family portfolio that drove you into multifamily? Yeah, basically everything. (laughs) Um, I really, really dislike managing tenants. I had professional management across my portfolio, but there's still some amount of involvement that you have to have with your, even your property managers, right? So when a pipe burst in one of our properties, instead of sending, I needed to make sure that my property managers were actually sending out three different plumbers to give me an estimate and then I'm picking the best estimate. Whereas if you're kind of hands off, they might just send you 
you their um, preferred vendor and their right. preferred vendor maybe double the price of what someone else would do. And so there was still a lot of time going into due diligence and management of the repairs and maintenance side. Um, also having to make decisions about like evictions and who we should individually lease these properties out to instead of having a standard guideline or someone who's on site overseeing everything, which is what happens in our multifamily assets. I was having to do a lot of that grunt work. And on top of that, I was also paying property managers to actually execute and do it. So it was just a lot of management and micromanagement that didn't really appeal to me the time restrictions it has, you know, there's no Christmas day off, there's no Easter off, like you are always available for your property managers. Yeah, right. And this is something I've been talking a lot about recently on the podcast is there's really no true passive investment, you might think, hey, I'm gonna hire a property manager, and I'm just gonna be hands off and read a report once a month. Really, it doesn't work like that. I mean, you have to manage (laughs) the property manager at the very least, right? So here you are, you're kind of finding that problem. And when you have to devote that much active effort to this, it really becomes very unscalable. So I'm sure that's one of the bottlenecks you found. And so here you are, what's the transition? Where do you turn the corner into investing in multifamily from there? Yes. After I was doing single family, basically at 110% capacity, I quickly (laughs) realized, like you said, it's not scalable at all because it requires so much dedication. I think once you get above maybe 100 to 150 properties, maybe you can justify the cost of bringing someone on full-time to oversee all of those. But again, they're still managing the managers and there's still some amount of involvement you're going to have to have. So upon realizing that it's not that scalable, I actually had had met one of my partners, his name is Sapin Tulati, and he was investing in the Dallas market, single family homes, the same way I was. So we started talking and we decided, hey, we can pivot to multifamily and this is a highly scalable model and we can both do it together because we're both ready. We both reached that kind of glass ceiling, so to speak, that we couldn't really break further out of in single family rentals. So joined forces, which worked out really, really nice because he is amazing with like numbers and the way he models things financially is awesome. And I've learned so much from him, but just having someone on your team that has like this super strength that's super important and then you not really possessing as much of that strength, it really makes like for a nice synergy between the partners. We actually started in multifamily together and obviously we still are doing multifamily to this day, but it's a much better fit for me personally what I was looking for because like you said, single family investing is almost never passive. The only way I would say it's probably passive is if you have a partner who is the active manager, but someone on the ownership side has to be active. Yeah, sure. I think it's really important to pull out of what you just mentioned there about finding this partner with complementing skills. He's got this, you know, Mm -hmm. great in-depth background at financial modeling and able to do the financial analysis and projections of the properties. And then you bring a different skill to the table. So you want to find somebody that kind of complements your skill Mm -hmm. set, you know, is strong where you are weak. You can also bring value to the partnership. So I think that's really important to note there as well. Yep, absolutely. And it's interesting because we're now four partners. I told you my partner, Neil, who's a physician. And then we have a fourth partner. Her name's Pooja. She's like our brand and marketing strategy guru. Yeah, she was at the Hershey company before. Hershey Kisses was actually her brand. You might have heard of it. (laughs) So (laughs) she came over to Enzo. And then now she does a phenomenal job with our marketing brand strategy, both for the investment side, but also for the property side as well. Basically, what our model has always been, or I guess is, 
is find partners, like you said, who have strengths that you don't necessarily have and bring strengths to their table that they don't necessarily have. And when you have four dynamic partners that are all really, really strong in their respective areas, it makes for like a really nice partnership because we now have like a very smooth cadence on our cycles and kind of who handles what. And then the other thing that we do is we actually cross train. So at least two of our partners can do any single task that's kind of instrumental to our processes. So for example, sending out investor newsletters, right? Pooja does that mainly and that's why they look so pretty and they're so well done because she's an expert and she does a great job of it. But she was out on maternity leave at the end of 2018. So I actually was cross-trained on that. So I put out our newsletters and kind of oversaw that process while she was out on maternity leave. So as we kind of have different times that one partner has to step in or step out, there's always a second partner who can step up and kind of handle or at least manage until the other partners back in town or back in the office. So it allows us to be able to take breaks and kind of spend that family time that is really the whole reason we do this. So I think that's really important is to cross train partners. The second partner is not going to be as strong as the primary partner, but as long as they are strong enough to be able to kind of weather a storm, so to speak, or weather an absence of the primary partner, then it's worked out really well for us. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's good operating model, I would say, and a, definitely a good mm-hmm. takeaway there. So for people thinking about forming partnerships, not being the only person that's capable of this one thing in case somebody is out mm-hmm. or somebody is away or whatever it might be. So yeah, really important stuff there. Exactly. So now you guys have a great operating uh, relationship amongst the four partners and you guys are mm-hmm. doing really well. But going back to forming Enzo Multifamily, which is the company you guys created, what mm-hmm. did that first deal look like when you turned the corner from consolidating your or liquidating your single family mm-hmm. portfolio to doing that very first multifamily deal. What were some challenges you went through? What were some hurdles you had to overcome? What that first deal look like for you guys? Yeah, it was really hard. <laughs> the first deal is always, I feel like the hardest deal, right? Because you don't know what you don't know at that time. So for us, it was a lot of trial and error with how to raise funds. So I'm on the capital raising side for our company. So I do a lot of investor interaction. And I actually am the one that develops those relationships and I maintain those relationships. So for me, the challenge that I often had was, or actually when I went into it, that I didn't know I was going to have. Today, I, it's very difficult different because obviously I've learned from some of those pain yeah, points. Sure. But yeah, I mean, that's like the whole point of going through each new project. So initially, one of the things I did not realize was the amount of questions that investors have, I was not prepared at the time to answer them. And I thought I was. So what that means is there are about 10 to 20 questions that pretty much every investor asks me on every single project. But because I didn't know what they were going to ask me, I didn't know or have that those answers already prepped or ready or have somebody on my team who could answer those right away for them. So since then, now, obviously, I know what those 10 or 20 questions are going to be because they're always almost the same question. So I go in having all of that knowledge. Also, now that I'm more familiar with how multifamily works than I was at my first deal, it's a lot easier for me to just kind of ad lib something like off the cuff because I understand the process very intimately at this point. 
Yeah, sure. So just having that knowledge piece getting started was a hurdle, it sounds like. Being able to answer those investor questions and be very mm -hmm. polished and up-to-date on your material. So yeah, I could definitely see yes. that being a hurdle. And it's like you said, you don't know what you don't know. And if you're not expecting some question out of right field from an investor, you might not know how to <laughs> handle that the first time. So Exactly. And also, it was we actually were very inefficient our first raise as well. So <laughs> we thought, okay, let's do, let's put out our package with each individual investor and then we'll call them and then we'd spend maybe like two or three hours over the course of a couple of weeks educating that investor about what multifamily is. So these are like our friends and our colleagues and we're educating them about what multifamily is. And then we're asking them to also make a fee or $100,000 commitment. Typically, that's not enough time for most investors to get comfortable with a brand new asset class. Sure, what yeah. we found since then that works really well, and um, this might be something your readers can start doing, even if they're looking to get into multifamily, is start educating your investors today. So what we do now is we send out a monthly newsletter, and it's very short. We do four paragraphs on every month on different things that are happening in the multifamily market. And so what that does is it forces us as Enzo to choose the most relevant and most juicy articles rather than just putting out fluff because we have to produce content every week. So we put it out once a month. Our investors are reading that. We're, we condition them for why we like certain markets, why we don't like certain markets. We prep them for changes that we see coming down the pipeline. So by the time they get a deal from us, they are not blindsided. It's nothing new. They're already used to seeing a lot of this information. They've seen it before. So I would say um, prepping investors before you even present them with a deal is very important. We now also have a cadence where one of the four partners talks to every single investor one-on-one -on -one before they ever see a deal. So um, what we do is we take about half an hour to 45 minutes to answer every question that's individualized to that investor so that they know generally how the process works. And then when we do have a specific deal, all they do is plug in the model of that specific deal to what they know. And then it's a very smooth and easy understanding. So that's kind of what we found works really well. We've also, again, scalability is something you want to be focused on. I think from the beginning. So instead of making individual phone calls for like two and three hours about every project that we do, now we put out our offering. We have a soft commitment button. We do a conference call with all four of the partners. We add more color to the offering memorandum. And then after that, we go through our soft commitment list and we answer any individual questions one-on-one -on -one there. But 90% of questions are answered by the end of that conference call. So the 10% of questions remaining, we tackle those documents go out. We use DocuSign. It, I highly recommend it. It's a great way to make it easy and streamlined for your investors. There's also like, I think SignEasy is another one. There's a bunch of them, but we use DocuSign. And then once we get those back, we confirm receipt of wired funds. And it's a pretty smooth process. We're still tweaking the process even to this day because every project we find better ways to improve our customer experience. Yeah, a lot to unpack there and such great advice, tons of good <laughs> advice there. But something I'm going to pull out is if you're an investor mm -hmm. listening in right now and you're thinking, well, hey, I'd really like to raise private money for a syndication mm -hmm. deal, uh, maybe a smaller multifamily or whatever that might be. It's not too late to start reaching out to your investor base and let them know what you're doing and just give them a, maybe a news yeah. update on you know deals you're seeing or things you're doing. Because when that deal comes, you don't want to be behind the eight ball and then reaching out and building those relationships. Yeah. 
relationships. And that's one thing I've been talking about a lot lately on the podcast as well as building relationships and going beyond the numbers. So that's what you're doing essentially mm -hmm. by having this one-on-one -on -one call with each investor. It's kind of building that report and building that relationship and answering questions. So mm -hmm. the, time the deal comes, you don't have to, you know, start from the beginning and do all that while exactly. you're trying to raise money. So really important takeaway there. And because too, once you're under contract on something, your clock starts ticking pretty quickly. And you're usually not going to have more than 60 days, maybe 90 days to close the deal. So if you're doing like, for example, in August of 2018, we did a little over 7 million in a raise. And we had plenty of time because we had a lot of these systems in place. But if that was our first deal, there's no way we would have been able to do it because there's no way we would have been able to reach enough investors with our old methods. Yeah, sure. Well, maybe uh, that's a good segue into what are some of your methods for raising capital and some of these streamlined systems you've alluded to throughout the uh, conversation here? Yeah, so we have a lot of tools that we use. Um, I'm actually really excited because we're at this month, we're getting ready to put the pieces in place to roll out a new investor portal. IMS is one of the databases. There's like IMS, Update Capital, Juniper Square, and I think there's like one more that people use. So we're using IMS. What it is, is it's a investment platform. So as an investor, most of our investors are repeat investors. So they might be invested in two or six or seven projects with us. It just widely depends. But what they can do is they can log into this investor portal. They can see all the updates right there. So if it's two o'clock in the morning and they're an insomniac and they want to just know what's going on with their property, how much did they make? They're not texting me or calling me, but they can log into this portal and see it there. So all the tax documents get up loaded there. They can send it to their CPAs, their financial advisors. So everybody, it's kind of more of a cohesive central location. Um, definitely not cheap. So it's cost prohibitive if you don't have several assets. But it's definitely something that I would say if you're starting out, have that goal in sight because I think that it is just a tool that is really professional. And I think our investors will really like it. And I think that other syndicators would actually really like it. So that's one tool. Another way that we kind of streamline our tool that we use is, like I said, DocuSign, but we also utilize MailChimp and there's Constant Contact. There's a bunch of different CRM software and MailChimp will actually allow you to push out emails to different lists. So every single one of our investors gets an update on their specific property every month. And that goes through our MailChimp. Our newsletters run through our MailChimp. One-off announcements run through MailChimp. So that's also been another tool we found useful. And then I'd say the third tool we use on a daily basis is Slack. So I feel like yeah. I say how much I love Slack so much that Slack should pay me, but they don't. <laughs> we actually <laughs> pay them to use their platform. <laughs> but it's really been an amazing tool because um, one of the tricks that we learned or one of the things that we've learned is it's really nice to make a channel for your individual properties. And so what we do is we have individual channels set up with different people. So for example, we have one for one of our properties with the property manager on that property. So they have a direct line of access to the four partners. We hardly use it, but it's great if there's some kind of emergency or if they need a quick response. We also set one up. Let's say someone was sub-syndicating for our deal and they were partnering with us on the deal. 
we set up a Slack channel for them. So they have direct access to us as well. So I think Slack is just like an awesome tool all around. And I'm pretty sure it's way more robust than we even know it is because we don't really use all the features that are on it, but highly recommend it. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Vina, I think one thing that maybe prevents or scares people from ever getting started in multifamily investing is raising that private capital. I mean, it's a big Mm -hmm. responsibility and a big fear of a lot of people. So maybe can you talk a little bit about your mindset shift when you went from single family investing to raising private capital for these larger apartment deals and what went on there with you personally? Yeah, you just don't sleep at night. It's super easy. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, easy yeah, it's really easy. Well, so it's funny that you say that because I get asked about that a lot. Like, how do you not worry about it when you're raising millions of dollars from your friends and family, essentially? And, you know, the truthful answer is I'm never not worried about it because I feel, I treat and feel like each one of our investors is like my sister, right? And so there is this immense amount of responsibility that I feel and all of my partners feel toward our investors. And I think that it's important that we feel that because we are so motivated and so incentivized to be the absolute best that we can possibly be for our investors. And I think if I was like, oh, you know, it's no big deal. It's someone else's money. Then I think that that would be a big red flag. I worry about every single dollar that we've taken in all the time. We mitigate that by obviously following SEC guidelines and standards very, very strictly. We have a great legal team that makes sure we're doing everything correctly. We have great CPA teams. They work with us. So we have a lot of really great advisors and team members. But at the end of the day, it is nerve wracking. And it's very difficult to ask your best friend for $100,000 knowing that it's at risk. But another thing that we do when we're raising capital is I always tell our investors, look, there is nothing that I'm ever going to put in front of you that has zero risk. Everything has a risk. These are all projections. This is why we think it's going to happen. And I believe it's going to happen, but it may or may not. And that's just the reality of investing. I don't have a crystal ball and neither does anybody else. And then the other thing we do is one of the partners or up to all four of us, depending on the time of year and liquidity, but we always put our own money at risk. So we always invest into our own deals on the LP side. Typically, it'll be like one couple. So like my husband and I might invest or Neil and his wife might invest or Stephen and his wife might invest or Pooja and her husband might invest. So typically, any one of the Enzo couples will be invested. And a lot of times, it'll be more than one of us invested into the deal. Yeah, sure. I think maybe a healthy perspective on raising capital is not to look at it so much like you're going to friends and family and asking them for an investment of 50 or one hundred thousand dollars, but rather you're providing them with an opportunity to get a good healthy return on their money. So it's you're not asking for a handout or a donation, right? But rather you're bringing an opportunity to them. And if you can kind of keep that lens on it kind of maybe lessens, maybe just like the mental burden or the hesitation to go out. Yeah, you're totally right, actually, because that's usually how I frame it as well. But when we're talking about like my internal thoughts, (laughs) this is how I like to, yeah, no, you're totally right. I mean, it is an opportunity. And you know, there's a reason why we overfund every single one of our investments. Like I have new investors that can't even get into our investments right now, despite like them being on the ball and trying to get into it first. They, They just can't because we don't have enough room. And so it's always a great problem to have, but it's always a problem too at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's because it's a great opportunity that we present. And we try to be very diligent in that too, in choosing the right project. So we say no to most, the vast majority of projects that we see, we say no to them. So when we do say yes, it's only for that right project. 
Yeah, sure. What are you seeing in like the marketplace today and, and as of recently in terms of your multifamily portfolio? Are you seeing a lot of deals come across your desk that just aren't working? Are mm-hmm. you seeing less deals? You know, what's the kind of market look like where in your markets that you're investing in? Yeah, so at the beginning of last year, so our two big markets are DSW and then we're now actually starting to get more heavy into Jacksonville, Jacksonville, Orlando, Tampa area. Up through, I would say the first three quarters of last year, the market was so incredibly tight. We were seeing syndicators popping up everywhere. They were overpaying for assets like by a lot. I'm not talking about like 25, 50,000. I'm talking about like half a million to a million or more. And we were just very rooted in our principles. And we just do not over... Like we've walked away from $10 million plus properties for over $25,000. We said, no, we're not coming up. This is our best and final. And so we have been very firm in what we'll change or amend or say yes or no to. But we're seeing a lot of people that were coming in and kind of flooding that market and driving prices up. Towards the end of 2018, we started seeing a lot more deals being retraded and coming across our desk. And going into 2019, I think this month is kind of a little bit slowish because it's January. Everybody's kind of waiting for the conferences to start putting their deals out. So I think in the next couple of weeks here, we'll start seeing a lot more deal flow. But prices seem to be a little bit more reasonable, seems to be shifting away from a heavy seller's market where sellers aren't getting the value that the buyer is going to add. We're not paying for that anymore. So I think we're starting to see that shift. I think we're starting to see a little bit more realistic pricing and better cap rates. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's always good to hear different people's opinions, especially in different markets, because every market is different. I'm sure Mm -hmm. you see differences just in between Jacksonville and Dallas. So you hear a lot about cap rates being depressed and markets being overheated. Dallas is one of those that you hear a Mm -hmm. lot about that. There's a lot of people People who find Dallas appealing because of Texas economics. And, you know, it's one of the mm-hmm. well-diversified cities in Texas. So you're lucky to be invested there. And uh, Jacksonville, I don't know too much about, yeah. but I do hear a lot of people moving that way. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, interesting to hear somebody like you with a ton of experience as a uh, take on the market. Yeah, Jacksonville is definitely an up-and-coming market. I think we're going to see a lot of Texas operators moving to the Florida markets this year. We moved into the Florida markets actually just last year, but we've been studying them for maybe like two or three years. And so we're excited to be in there. Jacksonville has like a lot of rent growth. It's very strong in the job sectors. It reminds me actually a lot of what Dallas was doing back in like 2015, 2016. So there's a lot of runway still in Jacksonville. And we also like to that we have the diversity across multiple states now. And we don't want to be too diverse because you can't laser focus, but that's why we like having two different markets. And Jacksonville, the pricing is still a little bit better because Dallas is so so many investors are coming in from out of state to invest in the Dallas market. And we love the Dallas market. It's just a very overheated zone. Yeah, sure. Well, at the beginning of the new year here in 2019, what does the future have in store for Enzo Multifamily? Well, hopefully we'll be making a lot more headway in the Jacksonville markets. We have a couple of deals that we're evaluating currently. I think one of them is probably going to be awarded to us. A little premature to tell, but we're really excited about what Florida markets have in store. I'd like to have you know, another $150 million to our portfolio this year. And hopefully we find enough deals where it'll work. But if we don't find the deals, we will just miss our target. And we're totally okay with that because we'd rather take on the best 
those projects and take on projects just for the sake of taking them on. Well, exciting stuff. And I'm sure you guys will have no problem at least experiencing close to $150 million of growth, if not that, and uh, yep. exciting there. So, well, hey, it's been a really fun time having you on and picking your brain and getting to know your background and your experience in the world of multifamily real estate. As we're wrapping up here, we've got a lightning round. We ask every one of our guests. Okay. Go for it. All right, let's do it. All right. Well, the first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And then what did you do to overcome that? So my first investment when I was investing in single family homes, I didn't know that you could circumvent the MLS and go directly to buyers or sorry, sellers and buy from them. So I actually did a lot of reading and I talked to a lot of people that were successful in the game before me. Most people that are successful are absolutely willing to tell you how they did what they did because it benefits everybody to have better operators because there's less money being lost. There's less investors that get scared of markets. So it's always great when you can get knowledge from somebody else who's already made those mistakes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, really important there. So like you say, when you're getting started, you don't know what you don't know. And it's just one of those right. things. So once you learn that, a whole new world opens up and your eyes are open to that. So yeah. Yeah. Personal habit that contributes to your success. Being on the capital raising side, like I said, investor facing. So for me, one of like the traits of my personality is I've just never met a stranger before. And so that has actually really helped me to be successful because I think that investors, they're investing in the team, right? They're not just investing into one, two, three main street. They're investing into the team that's going to operate and execute this. And so I feel like having transparency and a really genuine relationship with your investors is really important. For me, I said, a lot of time getting to know our investors outside of investing. You know, I like to know about where are you going on vacation this month? When's your son's birthday? What are they into? How is the baby doing? You know, all of those things. And that's just because I'm a genuinely curious person. Okay, fine, maybe nosy. <laughs> but I'm curious about our investors. And I always try to make a note to follow up on something, especially if one of our investors is going through something that's really, you know, life changing. We always make it a point to follow up and, you know, see how we can help. And so I I think the willingness to help other people is one of the biggest factors. And then also just being really outgoing and personable and getting to know your investors on a personal level. Yeah, that's really important and a good quality. And it kind of comes through in your voice. I mean, obviously, you can just tell that you're a friendly, compassionate, caring person and full of enthusiasm. And just, you know, I'm sure uh, it shows with your investors as well. Thanks, Jacob. I appreciate that. Well, Vina, do you have an online resource that you find valuable in your day to day? Earlier, we kind of elaborated on Slack and several others. Is it maybe one of those? Or do you have another one that you'd like to recommend? Yeah, I mean, all of those definitely. I also actually spend a lot of time on these like multifamily Facebook groups. A lot of them just have awesome resources. And there's other people who have like a different perspective on the market, or they are involved in another aspect of the multifamily business. But like, for example, there's a CPA that always posts about tax strategies. And I find that really interesting because I don't know about that. I hire people to know about that. Or there's an attorney who posts about trust and different ways to protect your assets, which are just so creative and things that I just had never thought about before. So I like those Facebook groups because it gives you a chance to network and one-on-one ask questions. And it gets rid of a lot of the noise that you might be otherwise. Yeah, sure. I'm a podcast, YouTube, Facebook video kind of junkie when it comes to those things. I'm just (laughs) podcast. I was listening to some Ken McElroy videos 
videos. Oh, and yeah. Garrett Sutton and Tom Willright. And just guys like those really valuable to go yeah. get a dose of what their expertise is and hear it straight from these world-renowned leaders in their mm-hmm. field. So yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah. I totally agree. Well, Vina, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why? The two I always kind of go back to, and I know it's not specifically real estate investing, but it's a really great foundation for thinking about like money and building wealth. First one is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I know probably everybody says that. Of course. (laughs) You know, it was really life-changing when I read it in my late teens, early 20s, and I actually reread it every now and then. But it's just a really great way, not necessarily to like understand or learn how to invest in real estate, but to understand and learn what your goals and strategies should be to generate truly passive of income. Like there's the ESBI model in there. And so I think it really makes a whole lot of sense to start there. But my other book that I really love too is The Millionaire Next Door. It totally changed my perspective, especially when I was younger. You know, I graduated college really early and I was making great money and I was spending it. I don't even know what I bought when I was in my 20s. You know? <laughs> but it didn't cross my mind that saving a dollar today could be worth just 15 years from now or whatever, you know? And so it changed my mindset a lot to try to be an accumulator of wealth, not an under accumulator of wealth. And so I know they've put out a new book called The Next Millionaire Next Door or The New Millionaire Next Door, something like that. It's written by his daughter. And so that's on my list to read next. Okay. Yeah. So that's Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Great classic. It's one of those books that I recommend to everybody. And somehow I don't have a copy laying around because I always give whatever (laughs) copies I have away. Yep. Me too. (laughs) Awesome. Well, last question in the lightning round, Vina, if you were to give advice to your 20 year old self to get started investing Mm -hmm. in real estate, what would you tell yourself? I would tell myself to skip single family investing and go straight to multifamily. And I would also tell myself not to be, okay, I wasn't ever really intimidated or anything like that. But I think if I had started younger, I could have been so much further than where I am today. So I think you have to like jump in and do it, but find a partner that you like and want to work with. And more importantly, that you respect, partner up with them and go big or go home. Like you just have to jump in and do it. Yeah, everybody says get started earlier. They wish they would have started sooner, but you got a pretty early start right out of college, it sounds, and you know, had a good background. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's shaped up just fine for you. But yeah, everybody wishes they would have started sooner, right? Hindsight's always twenty twenty. Yeah, sure. Well, Vina, hey, it's been a lot of fun having you on the podcast, catching up with you, getting to know your story and your journey and picking your brain about multifamily. For the audience members that maybe want to reach out to you, learn more about what you're doing or learn more about Enzo Multifamily, where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, so they can reach out on our website. It's just enzomultifamily.com. That's E like elephant and like Nancy, Z like zebra, O like Oscar, and then multifamily.com. There's a button that says retire in luxury. So you can sign up for our newsletters through that. You can request a partner call and you'll get a chance to ask any one of us questions one-on-one. And yeah, it's the best way to reach us because we're on top of that. Yeah, awesome. So that's enzomultifamily.com. We'll link that site in the show notes for audience members to find if they want to find more about you or learn about what you're doing there. Dina, as we're wrapping up here, any last minute parting piece of advice, guidance for the audience members? 
Yeah, I think that these podcasts that you're hosting are a great source of information and knowledge. So as people are getting started, continue listening to these and subscribe to these because you'll get notifications when they first come out. I didn't know that was a thing until recently. (laughs) So I would say these types of podcasts are very useful. I mean, I even learn a lot when I'm listening to other guests that you guys have on these shows. So keep it up. Thanks for having me. It's only made possible by great guests like yourself. So thanks so much Mm. for coming on the show today. Look forward to having you back on sometime in the future. Thank you. I'd love to be back on soon. Awesome. Well, take care, Vina. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. That wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Vina Jetty. To learn more about Vina and what she's doing at Enzo Multifamily, you can visit enzomultifamily.com. That is linked in the show notes for you to find. Well, hey, if you haven't yet, please go over and leave a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeartRadio, wherever you're listening to this podcast at. And of course, for more information, resources, and to connect with me, you can visit www.jacobayers.com. Till next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.